Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. We're excited about this new series, Surfing the Psalms. And I think uh, it's such a giant book. If you have a Bible with you, just turn to the Psalms. If you could find Psalm 19, we're going to get to Psalm 19 this week. It's a real evidence of His glory. We tend to look at things and we forget to go the next step. If you look up in the sky and and realize that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, then you need to realize that we need to declare the glory of God as well. It is declaring the fact that he is glorious in, God is glorious in his size for creating something so big. He's glorious in his engineering for creating something that works so well together. He's glorious in his artistry for making something so beautiful and he's glorious in his goodness and his kindness for making something that we can, all of humanity can see. Jeremiah wrote in uh, chapter 33 that uh, no one can number the stars of the sky. At the time, that was against the scientific wisdom, because with the uh, just without any additional help, when you look up into a dark sky, uh, apparently in each hemisphere you can see about three thousand stars. Six thousand stars are visible totally from Earth, but whatever hemisphere you're in, you can usually see three thousand. Now, that's not if you live in a city, right? That's not if you live uh, or it's a cloudy night, but if it's on a clear, dark. Uh, night where you can or all the stars seem to be out I know they're always out but that's the expression we have when all the stars are out there's about 3,000 that we can see without any assistance 3,000 in our in our uh, starry sky and Jeremiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the skies uh, the stars could not be numbered and that kind of went against the science of his day and but now we know a little bit more than we knew back then. So I thought, let's consider just the, just the, um, the Milky Way, the galaxy that is part of, of what we live in. They have estimated that there are 200,000 million stars just in the Milky Way. So if you have a pile of a million, you need 200,000 of those piles just to represent the number of stars that are just in our galaxy. And Jeremiah wrote that you couldn't, a person couldn't count. You can't count that, the number of stars that are in the sky. So I took out my little calculator uh, with a big screen on it, and I did some, some division. I took that number, 200,000 million, and I divided by 365 days in a year, and 24 hours in a day, and 60, uh, 60 minutes in an hour, and 60 seconds in a minute, and I, let's assume that you can count, let's see you can see all those stars that are out there, 200,000 million stars. If you can count three stars every second uh, for 24 hours a day, if you counted for 100 years, you would be about 5% into the numbering the stars in our galaxy. So I thought, well, it's, another, it's kind of hard to figure it out that way, to notice it that way. But, so if you started... Of total, if you counted the total number of years that it would take to count those stars just in our galaxy, it's about 2,100 years ago. So if you started about 100 years before Jesus was born, starting and counting all the stars just in the Milky Way, you'd be finishing right about now. <laughs> and that's just the stars that are in the Milky Way. There are millions of galaxies that they've discovered. They're estimating anyway. So no one knows the number and no one can count the number. And that's what Jeremiah wrote. 
that we have an incredible thing. And so when we see the stars of the sky, when we see the glory that's up there, it's heaven declaring the glory of God. It's not just a beautiful sky, but it's a beautiful sky that God made. It's not just um, an incredible expanse. It's not just amazing things to understand and incredible things to explore, but it's the things that God made, and it reflects His glory. Rather than getting into all the other scientific side of things, let's go to the next verse. It says, Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. This is the sky, the, sky, the, the heavens declaring the glory of God, and, and the, the sky is proclaiming the, the work of His hands. These things, it says that they, day by day, day after day, they pour forth speech. That's an incredible little phrase that it's really the idea of a, of a gushing spring that just keeps pushing out more and more, flooding the area with water. That's what it says. It's pouring forth that speech. And night after night, it says it reveals knowledge. There was an author that wrote, If God had not placed the stars in the night sky, the blackness of night would have communicated powerfully to all humanity, ancient and modern. There is nothing and no one out there. Verse four, sorry, verse three says they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice, voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The glory of God is in the visible heavens for all to see. It's communicated to all mankind, regardless of who they are, no matter what their language. It's a message that has gone throughout, out throughout all the earth. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one. Romans 1 verse 20, he writes, For since the creation of the world, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You know, we are without, we are without excuse. We can tell just by the stars in the sky, by the sky that has, the heavens that have been revealed that declare the glory of God. We can tell that there is a God. And it says that we can know that He has eternal power and He has a divine nature just by seeing that. Aristotle wrote, Should a man live underground and there converse with the works of art and mechanism, and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the several glories of the heaven and earth, he would immediately pronounce, pronounce them the works of such a being as we define God to be. There is evidence, even Aristotle said. There is a, an, a fairly well-known, in his circles anyway, Robert Jastrow, Dr. Robert Jastrow is an astronomer and a physicist who claimed to be an agnostic. He said he was not a believer. He's an agnostic. He was, uh, got his uh, PhD in theoretical physics from Columbia University. And when they formed NASA in 1958, he was one of the men that was there to, that started and was in the forming of NASA. He was the first chairman of that Lunar Exploration Committee. They're the ones that established the scientific goals for exploring the moon with all those lunar landing, um, Apollo lunar landings. And he was part of the theory, he's the chief of the theoretical division at NASA. And so he has written some books in his lifetime. And two of the ones that I want to quote from are The Enchanted Loom and God and the Astronomer. 
So here's Robert, Dr. Robert Jastrow, um, who calls himself an agnostic and not a believer. Here's what he writes in one of his books. Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work now, I think, is a scientifically proven fact. He wrote in another spot, far from disproving the existence of God, astronomers may be finding more circumstantial evidence that God exists. And another quote I love to read from of his, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> the heavens declare, day by day, it pours forth speech, night by night, it reveals knowledge. Amazing thing. So God has given to us uh, a revelation of himself. He showed a little bit of himself just in his creation. In the, in the heavens and in, the, in his handiwork. But in this psalm, he says that he's given other revelation of himself. He's made himself known in another way. And it's what he calls it by different words, but he starts in verse 7 and calling it the law. So the written word that we have, what we call the Bible, that's what he's, that's what he's referring to. His, the written word that we have, the revelation of God by written word. And he says, this is another way that he has revealed himself, not just in creation, but in this, the law. In verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. My version says, refreshing the soul. This, this little stanza that's coming up, it says that it refers to the law of the Lord or the statutes of the Lord or the precepts of the Lord, all different words, and talking about that revelation of God. And it says something about it each time it says something about it. But it says, first it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then my version says, refreshing the soul. The word really means reviving in a sense of bringing back to life. I don't know how much of a gardener you are, if you're one of those gardeners that um, water or even a plant keeper in your house, you water things when things seem to be wilted and then you forget about it until they get wilted again and every time you put something in, if you're lucky, it comes back to life, right? That's what almost feels like, it comes back to life. That's the idea of what reviving is, coming back to life. But that's what the Word of God does for us. It allows us to come back to life. It revives us. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him. Through our knowledge of Him. Where do we get our knowledge of Him? In His revelation of Himself through creation and His revelation of Himself through His Word. That law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, reviving the soul. When people think of the law, they usually think of restrictions. You think of rules where it limits you. You're not allowed to do this. You can't drive that fast. You can't go here. Only, people, only if you're authorized. Can, you ever ever wonder what's behind doors that say authorized personnel only? 
I've done this before. I've actually done this before in the, you know, in the, you know, when you get in the back hallways or low hallways of the giant buildings and all, all these doors say authorized personnel only, right? And in my head, I'm thinking, how can I get in those doors? I've just been dying to see what's behind them. I know a lot of people don't care, right? I care. I just, I'm, I'm curious. I just want to know, especially when it says authorized. So I did this one time. The person that was walking with me had no idea what I was thinking. So I just said, hey, can you authorize me? And they said, what are you talking about? Just say you're authorized, I said. Just say you're authorized. She goes, okay, you're authorized. So I went to the door and I opened up because I was authorized, right? It was, it was, it was locked. So, so I, I think you have to be authorized to have a key as well. But we think of the law as rules to restrict our behavior. You can't do this. You shouldn't do that. Don't go here. Don't do that. Stop doing this. Don't kill anybody. We think of it as restriction and limiting. But that's not what we're supposed to think of it as. Not God's law, by the way. Not God's law. We're not supposed to think of it as limiting. It's supposed to be, it reveals God and who he is, which gives us our guidelines for life. He's the one who created the heavens. The heavens declare his glory. And he has created all that's around us. He has created us. And he knows how we are to function. And so he says, function the way that I tell you. These are the guidelines. We call them in the, this psalm calls it the law and the statutes and the precepts. But it's, it's God's guidance for us. We've all failed to keep that law that God has given us. And we need something else. We need the good news of Jesus Christ. God who sent his son to die for our sin. God who sent his son to be our savior, the one who forgives us. Should we only place our faith in him? If we only believe in him, he says he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The next verses use these synonyms for the law. And there's a, a bunch of them. And I was just, I actually saw a picture this week about a, of a truck who was, which was carrying, it had overturned on the highway, but it was carrying a full load of thesauruses. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I think it's kind of funny. So a full load of thesauruses was uh, not necessarily this truck. It's just another picture that I found. I feel like I need to be honest, but that's the story that I read. Uh, and apparently, this is what I read this part. According to the Associated Press, the witnesses who were there, they were stunned, startled, aghast, stupefied, confused, shocked, rattled, paralyzed, dazed, bewildered, surprised, awed, dumbfounded, flabbergasted, astounded, amazed, astonished, boggled, overwhelmed, horrified, numbed, and perplexed. There's the synonyms, synonyms that are coming up for the, in this verse. So the next part of that verse 7, it says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. That they are trustworthy. The word of trustworthy means that you can rely on it. Really, it means verified. The statutes of the Lord, the, thing, the guidelines that God gives us, have been verified. You don't have to guess if it's for you or not. They have been verified. And it says it makes wise the simple. I don't know how proud you are or how, how smart you think you are, but we are all simple people in our own way. But it says that wisdom can come from God himself if we follow his revelation. And then the next verse says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The idea of right here means it's a moral term. Uh, it's, it's kind of could be 
translated the idea of straight as opposed to crooked morally. So it says that this part of the law, the precepts of the Lord are right, are, are moral, they're straight as opposed to crooked. And what do they do? They give joy to the heart. That moral life, the life that God wants us to live, if we follow that, God says it's a source of joy for us. It says the command of the Lord is radiant. The idea of that radiance is purity. The, the commands of the Lord are pure because the source of who is God is pure and holy. And it gives light to the eyes, gives direction to the eyes. We can see what God wants us to see. And the fear of the Lord is pure. That idea of pure is clean. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm. They have been established. And all of them are righteous. They are valuable. The next verse says how valuable they are. It says that they're more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. The idea of being more precious than gold, the idea of being sweeter than honey, it's two things. It's better than wealth. Better than being more, it's, it's more precious than gold. It's better than wealth. And it's better than pleasure. The idea of being sweeter than honey, the things that we can experience ourselves as much as we might like them, it says that these are more valuable than them. They are more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. But why? Why are they that? Why are they more precious than gold? Why are they sweeter than honey? Because the next verse tells us, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This psalm has the idea of worship and obedience, and it's presented together. David gives us two reasons why the word of God is greater than material wealth or sensual pleasure. It's because God's word gives instruction and God's word gives reward. Here's the instruction. The instruction says, by them your servant is warned. It's the instruction or it's a warning. Warning is needed because we are tempted to sin. And God gives us warning for the needs that we have because our sins that we are susceptible to. Warning is needed for the dangers that we cannot see. Warning is needed for the dangers we cannot appreciate. Warning is needed for the dangers that are far off in the future. Warning is needed. And he says, by these precepts, by these laws, by your word, we can be warned. But the problem with being warned is warning is not enforced always, right? You can warn somebody, but you don't make them, right? Let me just tell you that I'm going to warn you about something, right? Here's one this morning. I heeded a warning, which is good for me. It's kind of progress. I went to, get, uh, I went to make my little smoothie, and I got my frozen um, fruit, and I put it in. I put my little protein powder in. I go to get the milk, and I saw in the milk it said July 2nd. And I quickly thought, today's not the 2nd. <laughs> That's five days ago. So I took the milk in the back that was J July 16th and I took it out and I opened it up and I put it in and then I put it back in behind the July 2nd milk. <laughs> so I heeded the warning that I saw this morning. I don't know if the rest of my family did. We'll, we'll have to have a conversation about that this afternoon to see if, see if they heeded the warning. I'm sure I did something wrong though. I think I did something wrong in that whole thing, but uh, I'm just going to call it an experiment. But it says, by these precepts, by these principles, by the guidelines that God gives us, we have received our warning. 
the warning, the suggestions of the, the way of you can avoid so much. Why do you warn somebody? Why is somebody being warned? Not so that they can be punished, right? We sometimes think that God warns us so that he can punish us. That's not true. A parent doesn't warn his, his or her child not to touch the hot stove just for the purpose of being able to punish. Like, I'm just going to wait until they touch the hot stove, then I'm going to punish them. Is that why a parent, if you're a parent and that's the reason you warn them not to touch the hot stove, you got a little work to do, right? That's not why we're, that's not, we want to warn them so that they can avoid the, the, the pitfalls and the, the troubles and that maybe they can learn from the mistakes that we remember, burning our hand on the stove. We pass those warnings along. And it says by these principles that God has revealed in his word that we are warned. And then it says that there is reward there as well. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we have the warning first, which is amazing that God has warned us about all the things that we need to avoid, the things that we need to be careful about in life. But it says only in keeping them is there great reward. There's no reward for just being warned. The reward is in keeping the warning, heeding the warning. Here's the, those two reasons. The warning first and the benefit or the reward. Greater than the wealth or greater than pleasures. And then I think David is reflecting through this psalm on the fact that he hasn't always heeded God's warning. He hasn't always followed God's law and he's broken God's law and he talks about his sin. In the next verses, verse 12, he says, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Things, what's a willful sin? I mean, it kind of explains itself, but what is a willful sin? It's a sin that we commit when we know better. Maybe it's when friends have warned us and we go ahead and do it anyway. Maybe when God himself has warned us and we don't stop. That's a willful sin. Maybe it's something that we've warned others about and we go ahead and do it ourselves. Maybe when we plan and even celebrate our own sin. You know, sin has a progression. And I just want to try to follow these steps with me. There's a lot here. It goes from a passing temptation to a chosen thought. And then from a chosen thought to an object of meditation. And then to a wished for fulfillment. And then a planned action. And then an opportunity sought. And then a performed act. But it doesn't stop there. Sin doesn't stop there. It goes on to a repeated action. And then delight in that repeated action. That's that willful sin area. And then to finding new and various ways of committing that same sin. And then to the level of habit. And then to the point where it's idolatry, where it demands to be served. And then to the point where it requires sacrifice. And finally, slavery. That's the pattern that sin gives to us. But in Romans 6, verse 14, it says, Paul writes that sin should no longer be your master. 
It implies that we're already slaves to sin. But it says sin should no longer be your master. No more. It used to be that way. Sin used to be your master, but no longer. But why? For who? Who, who, does this, who qualifies for this? The, no longer should sin be our master. It says because you are under, not under law, but under grace. So it's those who are under grace. The gift of God. Those have received that grace, that gift that God has offered to the whole world because he sacrificed his son for our sin. And we just need to accept that. When we accept that gift of salvation, when we recognize that Jesus really is the Lord of creation, that he is the God who sent his son to die for our sin, when we accept and we believe in that, we become recipients of the grace of God. He has freely forgiven us. The God of heaven has freely forgiven us. We are recipients of his grace. And it's for those of us who have done that, that, we, that Paul writes, that we're no longer supposed to be slaves to sin. You don't have to sin. You don't have to be that slave to sin. When David writes this psalm, he celebrates the two ways that we can know God. Through his creation, the heavens declaring the glory of God. And through his written revelation, what we call God's word or the Bible. And this celebration of God's revelation leads him to a humble prayer. And this humble prayer ends the psalm. And it says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thinking about the greatness of God as revealed in nature and the purpose of God as revealed in the law, should lead us to pray the very same thing. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When we pray, we can ask God three things. We can first ask God forgiveness because he wants to forgive. He sacrificed his son so that he could forgive. We ask for forgiveness. Next, we can ask for God's protection. He's given us warning. We ask for his protection. And we can ask for his guidance so that these thoughts of our hearts and words of our mouth may be good, acceptable, and pleasing in the sight of God. What an incredible psalm that we've gotten to see. I, I really strongly recommend that you dive more into this psalm. There's so much here. Let's pray. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.